All right, okay, that's better. There we go. All right, I can hear myself. So I'll try to keep uh, that right in front of me here. Thank you, thank you guys so much. Appreciate your help with that. And, and as I began to study and, and teach and preach to our church these principles from Ephesians chapter 4, I, I found that this really became the guiding, these became the guiding principles and this became the energizing force for God's work and for our members' participation in our church life and ministry. Now, I'm not going to glamorize it or, you know, try to exaggerate it and look back and say, I did it all right or we did it all perfectly or this is how to do it. That, that's not my heart in this but actually to take the fruit of that study and that experience and share it in a way that may be helpful. And during my time in ministry in South Carolina, uh, we happened to have a lady in our church who was the acquisitions editor for Journey Forth Press. And she had encouraged me to do some writing. And so actually during the transition time, going from pastoring to, uh, to being a professor, I thought, you know, I think this is a time when I can focus on this and really, really produce this. And so she worked with me, and this was published last December as The Thriving Church. And so that's the book that's available. And what I would like to do is is highlight some elements really of this text of scripture in Ephesians chapter four. So I'll invite you to join me there in Ephesians chapter four and, and talk about these thoughts. What is church growth? We use that term, we hear that idea. I think I can honestly say most of us would like to be part of a growing church. And I'm gonna use the words growing and thriving interchangeably through this talk here today. So I want to be part of a thriving church, don't you? I mean, that's what this weekend is about, and that's why you are here. And I think you probably have a heart for that. That's why you're in this session. So, so I want to be part of a growing church, a thriving church. Is that wrong? Is that just ambitious on my part as a pastor? Is that just as a church member something, well, I want to have a church that things are going well, and it feels good to be there, and it's exciting, and I'm proud to invite my neighbors to well, there are wrong ambitions when it comes to our view of church and our expectation, but I think being part of a growing and thriving church is not wrong in and of itself. In fact, we're going to see from this passage that is God's design for the church, that it would be healthy and growing and thriving. So, so I wanted to explore what it is, and then we know that God is in charge of growth. God is sovereign. God is involved in the life of the church. The Holy Spirit is present in the organism of the church. And so God is doing his part, but is there some contribution that I as a church member can make? Or in my case, as a pastor, is there, is there some part that you as a church member have in the health and the, the growth and whether or not that church is thriving? So what causes growth? And then the, the question that is the topic of this session is, can your church thrive? Or you could turn that around. Can my church thrive? And depending on the situation, the scenario, the setting, maybe some of the problems from the past or even the present in a church situation, what you see as the potential in the community where your church is, can my church thrive? Is that even possible? And I believe we'll see the answer from this, this passage of Scripture as well. And, and so the question I would like to put to us today, and I appreciate how, how uh, Brother John has made this so very personal for us, through these messages. We need to take ownership of, of this. And I would say the same is, is true here. And so, so the question maybe to have on your mind in this session is, is there something that you can do to help your church thrive in all of the biblical and right and appropriate ways, right? 
So is there something that you can do to help your church thrive? And you may hear three things. You may hear five things. There may be one main idea. There may be one little comment or almost, you know, offhanded remark that is made in this session. And you say, oh, you know what? That's for me. That's the one I need to take heed to. That's what I need to consider. That's maybe what I need to respond to. That's what I need to obey God in. That's how I need to, to be involved. And so I hope that'll be the case for you here today. So this will be a matter of what you can do. So what I would like to do is take the time to read the passage, because really that is where our authority is. That is where the information lies. This is where the truth is packed in. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, it's tempting to just jump past that because I have a lot to talk about. But I want us to hear together the truth from God's Word. And I hope that as with that introduction, you'll view this passage in that way. What is it that God is doing? What is it that we can do to contribute to a thriving church? And how can I be involved in that? And I also just want you to hear Paul's flow of thought. All right, so here we go, Ephesians chapter 4, starting with verse 1. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect or mature, complete man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love." Now, Paul is known for his lengthy sentences and complex strings of ideas, and there's a very good example of that right there, especially starting back there in verse 11. But there's truth packed in. There are treasures here for us to, to find, and I believe it will help shape your thinking and your heart, and, and I pray your church. In fact, let's pray for that right now. 
Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have laid out for us such wonderful truth and such clear direction in your word. Lord, I know that these men are here right now because they have an interest and a desire, and maybe they're just, in some cases, desperate to hear something that's going to help them as members of churches, maybe even as pastors of churches, because they want to be part of a thriving church. And again, not just so that we'll feel good about our church, but, but for your honor and so that it will fulfill your purpose. And so I pray that. I pray that that fruit would be borne out in our lives and in the churches represented right here in this session and maybe even those that may listen afterward. And so we commit this time to you and trust you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start by highlighting what we see in verse 16 that lends the theme to this study. And that is where Paul ends up this long sequence of ideas and this building progression of factors by saying that the body, and as you understand, he's using that metaphor for the church here. Uh, it's a metaphor. The church is like a body. But there's probably also a sense in which it is an actuality as well. The church is a body. We are an organization, but we're also a living organism. Christ is the head, and we are the members, right? So, so that metaphor, but also actuality of the church as the body of Christ is the picture Paul is using here and the image he's using to, to get us to think about this idea of growth. And when he does this, in the last verse, he says something can actually cause growth in the body. And the word cause is the word to make, right? So, so there's some, some way that the church can be acted in, acted on, that will produce that growth that I'm using the word thriving to represent as well. The question is, what causes growth in the body? Well, little grammar lesson, little reminder, there's a subject and a verb, right? In a, in a clause, in a, a complete thought in language, and so the verb is causes growth. What's the subject? Who's doing the causing? What's making it happen? Well, in this sentence, it's the body itself. It's separated from the verb, but it's there. The whole body, he says, that is joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effect of working by which every part does its share, so everybody's involved, actually produces growth in that body. Now, if you look back, the from whom is who? It's Jesus Christ. So, of course, he's the center of all of this. He is the initiator. He's the ultimate cause. But we as members of the body have an integral part in that. We have a vital role in producing that growth. And that's where we can say, all right, what can we do? What part do we have? What is there that we can identify from this progression of thought that we would say, all right, I can give myself, I can adopt, I can take ownership of that. And I can be involved in that way. And so that is what we will talk about. There are eight factors that I've identified in this passage. And the question is, can your church thrive? And, and I would say, I'm not going to say no, right? Right? And, and send you out. We're finished. No, the answer is yes, yes, it can, based on this text of Scripture, this passage. And, and here it is, the most, and I think, I mean, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this, this, this is the most extensive, thorough, and detailed passage about organic life in the church that we have in the New Testament. There are other descriptions or passages speaking about other elements, but this one is, is thorough. It's comprehensive. It's all together right here. 
And, and there are many activities that we can do, but this is the heart. This is the core. This is the foundation and the structure, like they're drilling holes for those underground pillars out here for, for the rocks. So when they put down the footers and erect the structure, it's going to be solid. It's going to be stable. That's what these principles are, right? These are the foundations. These are the stabilizing forces. This is the structure on which a church is built. And the first one might be a little bit surprising, because Paul turns the corner from chapter 2 of Ephesians where he says, you are one new man. All of you, Jew and Gentile, brought together in Jesus Christ. You are a new person, new body, all of you together in Christ. That's the church. Now he says, act like it. Walk worthy of this calling. How do you walk worthy of this calling? He tells us there in, in verse 1 of chapter 4, by endeavoring, excuse me, verse 3, by endeavoring, by working at, keeping this unity of the Spirit. You are one positionally, doctrinally, theologically, but you and I both know as human beings, we have to work at acting like we're one in the church setting. And that's the context here. It's the body of Christ. It's the church. We are naturally self-centered, we are naturally self-absorbed, we are naturally self-willed, and that comes out in marriage for sure, but it also comes out in church, doesn't it? And, and those, those pressure, those, those moments of pressure, those tense times, those, those difficult decisions, those disagreements, those varying opinions can actually produce a disunity in the church. I was sharing from this text, actually, this past summer at a camp, in a family camp, not here, different one. And uh, we were talking about this, this idea of unity, and this pastor was responding. He said, my people are dividing over masks. I mean, that, that, this, that's the new carpet, right? They used to divide over the color of the carpet. Now it's whether or not we wear masks. Is that important? Absolutely, right? But, but for people to be in contention about that, I mean, that's, that's a problem. We have our opinions. We have our positions. We have our experiences, our concerns, absolutely. But it's things like that that, that cause there to be disunity. And so, so just go right, right down the line. Again, selfishness, strong opinions. Um, you know, I've been in this church for however many years, and the pastor wants to do something else that hasn't been done for 50 years. You know, all of those elements come into this. There's potential for disunity, so we have to work at it. I'm just going to touch on these quickly. There are four ways that Paul tells us to do that. These are the attitudes that he lists out for us there in verses 1 through 3. The first one is a realistic view of yourself. That's the word lowliness, sometimes translated humility. Is church about you? We have our preferences. We have our, our opinions, our concerns, our expectations of people, of pastors, of programs. Hey, there's three Ps. How about that? Um, just kind of fell out. Um, of, of appearance, of schedules, you know, all, right down the line, right? And we can tend to think it's about us. We can be disappointed with, with the coffee or the temperature or the sermon, any of it, right? And get in that mindset of, you know, it's about me. Lowliness is, hey, you know, it's not about me. Paul said in Philippians 2, let each esteem other better than himself. Lowliness of mind like Christ. What are you talking about there? So just, just to touch on that, a realistic view of yourself. Who, who are you really? Well, you're sinner saved by grace. You're a creature made by God. You're a member of the body. 
just like everybody else. You're not superior to anybody, no matter how long you've been in the church, how much money you give to the church, what you drive to church, what position you hold in church. You know, there's no superiority, inferiority. There are different roles and positions, absolutely, but we're all members of the body and should act like that. Conscious restraint, that's the word meekness, meekness. You've heard strength under control. That's what this is, right? We all have our strengths. Again, maybe it's a position. Maybe it's experience. Maybe it's maturity as a believer. Uh, maybe, maybe it's financial acumen. Maybe it's business experience. Maybe it's spiritual gifts. And we all need to contribute those into the life of the church, but there's a time to be quiet. There's a time to hold back and not inject ourselves or assert ourselves or grab the wheel and take control of a situation. The largest, heaviest land animal is the elephant, right? They weigh three to five tons, and they, they can just destroy things. They used to be used like military tanks, right? Uh, I read a story about a family on a trip in Africa. They were out looking at wildlife, and a bull elephant came up and flipped their car over. You know, <laughs> whoop, there it goes. But, but elephants aren't in circuses anymore, as I understand, but, but they, when they were, they were trained to, to be as, uh, to, to do acts as, as precise and delicate as a ballerina, almost, right? And that is strength under control. That's the idea. And some of us at times can be the bull elephant and come crashing in to a business meeting, to a conversation, to a process of making a decision in church life, to a relationship, to a conflict. And we, we should exercise our gifts. We should use our strengths. We should speak up and, and make our voice known and share from our experience and offer our expertise, absolutely. Or work through a problem with another individual, but not with such force and, and, and a destructive approach to that by any means, or I'm going to have my way, or this is how it has to be. That's what he's talking about here. So conscious restraint. Patient endurance, that's long-suffering. That means that... Uh, that, that pe when people have problems, you stay in, and, and you, you bear with it, and you love them, and you care for them, and you don't bail. And so, so if there's an offense or a disagreement or a time of tension in church life, the first response is not, oh, I'm out, you know, I'm out of here. It is, I'm staying in, I'm working through this, I'm going to care for this person, and that really is part of, of the fourth and as well, loving acceptance, bearing with one another in love. We, we accept people and we put up sometimes with people's junk or disagree, disagreeing opinions or, or offenses or just different approaches to life or, or different mindsets about how to deal with global crises and pandemics and politics and all those things. We, we, we stay with people and walk with them. And even on a discipleship level, as we've been hearing about, just staying in when there's failure, when there's rejection sometimes and walking through that problem with that person. And it's all wrapped up in love. Love permeates a thriving church. And you'll see that in this passage. Paul repeats it. You'll see it in the book of Ephesians. In fact, in the book, I'll try to say that too much in the session, in the book, The Thriving Church, I trace love through the book of Ephesians and show how it's woven through the life of the church and, and of church people. A church should smell like love, right? You ever walk into somebody's house and, boy, their house smells different from mine, right? Just That's their life. That's their culture. That's their kitchen. That's their sweaty clothes, whatever. Um, when people walk in our church, right, it'd be like, wow, this church smells like love. Yeah, there's love here, right? That's the idea. 
And that's how we function. That's how we operate. So, so the first way to have a thriving church is on a relational level. And Paul elevates that right at the beginning of this practical section of this book. He says, work at unity. Now, there must be a truth foundation. And that's where he goes next here in the next few verses, verses 4 through 6. And that is by identifying some foundational truths. So, so we can help our church, you can help your church thrive by being committed to these foundational truths. And he's been talking all along in chapters 1, 2, and 3 about that truth foundation that we have in Christ. But here he actually presents a list He divides it out into categories and lists them for us. One commentator calls these seven acclamations of oneness. Your church probably has a statement of faith, a doctrinal statement. You may have a covenant. Well, this this should be centralized in what we know and commit to as a church, as a body. This is what unites us. This is why we put up with each other. This is why we work through problems. This is why we hang in there. This is why we, we work through offenses. This is why we overlook sometimes minor problems because of these truths. And I, don't, I don't have them on the uh, uh, PowerPoint. I'm just gonna list them out for you here. We are members of the same body. We are members of the same body. There's one body. We've been given life by the same spirit. So we're members of the same body. We've been given life by the same spirit. We are confidently looking forward to the same future, one hope of your calling. So members, life, future, the fourth one, we are serving the same Lord, one Lord. He is our Lord. We serve him. We all serve the same Lord. We are saved by the same faith, one faith. We're saved by the same faith. We declare our faith with the same baptism, one baptism. We declare our faith, the same baptism. And we all have the same Father, one God and Father of all. Members, life, future, serving, save, declare, and Father, to make sure you get those blanks. So look at what we share. And as pastors, we need to highlight these foundational truths. And as members, we need to stay committed to these and guard these and remember this is what it's about. This is what brings us together. We may have all kinds of differences in background, personality, preference, family makeup, all of that, levels of maturity, even in, even as believers. And it's interesting here that some, some uh, writers about this passage point out that, that we see the Spirit, right, in here. We see the Son, referred to as Lord, and in the last one we see the Father. So the Trinity, the Father and Son and Holy Spirit together, and every, every truth that emanates from them unites us together. It's not just about facts or doctrines. It's about the person of God and who he is. So how can you help your church thrive? Be committed, maybe recommit to unity based on those foundational truths and be on guard against anything that would threaten or undermine or erode your church's commitment to those truths and against anything that would divide you over something that is not part of one of those truths. Then the third way to have a thriving church is by utilizing your gifts. 
from the ascended Christ. Now, sometimes Paul just kind of takes off, you know, it's like, it's like watching an airplane or a hang glider just kind of soar off or an eagle soar out there in the heights. And this is one of the places in this passage where he does this. And this, this is a rich passage of scripture. And, and so there's no way for me in this time period to get into all of that. Um, I try to, in, in the thriving church, uh, exposit and, and turn over every stone and talk about every one of these terms and phrases and ideas in there. But just, just generally right now, let me talk about what's happening here. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he did two things vital to the life of the church. Why can your church thrive? Because he sent the Holy Spirit, first of all, and we have the Spirit. But then secondly, when Jesus ascended to heaven, what this is telling us is that he provided the church with the resources needed to continue his work on the earth. So we're talking about making disciples individually, but also on a church scale. How can we do that? How is that even possible? How can we do church? Because Christ has endowed us with resources that enable us to do that, and they are called gifts. He says he gave gifts to men. Now, there are other passages that talk about this, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4. Here he's speaking more generally. He gave gifts to men, and we see a few things about that. First of all, there is something for everyone. There is something for everyone. He says in verse 7, to each one of us grace was given. This means every believer has a part and a place in the life of the church. There is no bench. We're all on the floor. We're all in the field, right? There's a place for everybody, and with that comes a responsibility. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, the Holy Spirit distributed to each one individually, he says. So he has given to every person abilities to contribute to the growth of the body. And so with that does come responsibility. So the gifts that Christ gave give us a responsibility to use it to serve him. Then we also see in Ephesians 4, 7 that the gifts that Christ gave are included in the grace package. He says, to each one of us, grace was given. That's generally speaking. And that's talking about God's favor. We know it's not earned. It is freely given. This comes with Christ dying in our place and providing us with his own righteousness. And it makes God's favor free to us. And the gifts that he gives us for building up the church are included with the package we receive at salvation by grace. They're all part of that. And Jesus Christ has given that to us. And then these gifts could have no greater value or potential usefulness. The story behind what Paul is talking about here is when um, a king or general of an army would go out and make war against another nation and would loot that the cities and would capture the citizens and bring all of it back and parade it through the town in front of their citizens. And sometimes a magnanimous king or general would start giving away some of that loot, even some of those slaves, to their own citizens as a way of showing, hey, this is what a great conqueror I am, and this is what a great person I am. I am being so generous, and it was part of the celebration. That picture is being used not to condone uh, pillaging, right, and conquering other, other countries, but as a cultural image they'd be familiar with of a conquering king returning home 
and saying, we've won, here is the bounty, I'm going to share it with you. And that's what Jesus did when he conquered sin and death and rose from the grave and ascended to heaven. That's what he's talking about, ascending to heaven. And he turns around and says to the church, here you go. I'm going to share with you everything you need. The the message of the gospel, the gift of, of salvation, the promise of forgiveness, the power of the resurrection to have victory over sin, and this great design for the church. So so it's not just about, oh, this is a great gift. It's about what an awesome king we have. And he has provided us with these gifts. And there's nothing greater, nothing more valuable, nothing more precious, precious or with potential for usefulness. They are grand in their value and potential. So again, that just points it back to us. What am I going to do with how God has enabled me? How am I going to be involved in his work? And and really the, the reassurance You have what you need. Your church has what it needs to be able to thrive in your context, in your setting. Now, we have to move on. Again, we could talk more about each one of these, but I want to give kind of the the, uh, little bit of a drone view of this. So the fourth way to have a thriving church is by having pastors who equip. And this is what he's talking about, especially in verses 11 and 12. The pastors and teachers are the current spiritual leaders in the church setting. And they equip the saints, verse 12 says, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Uh, There's a blogger and author named Tom Rayner, and he specializes in subjects related to pastoral ministry and church life. And uh, he, he wrote an article called, How Many Hours Must a Pastor Work Each Week to Satisfy the Congregation? And when he was a pastor, he did a survey of his own deacons, and he had a fairly large church and had, uh, I think, 12 deacons. And so he, he asked them, what is the minimum amount of time that, that he should spend as a pastor in, in church work, church-related prayer, meetings, sermon preparation, counseling, visiting, preparing for worship services, and all that stuff? And he took their answers and tallied them all up and compiled them, and, and the total was... 114 hours a week, right? So, so that, was, that, that was their collective expectation as, as the deacons. And he says, if I took one day off a week, I could work for the church 19 hours a day. His conclusion, clearly no one can ever humanly meet all those expectations. So I'm, I'm heart to heart now with, with church members, right? What are your expectations of your pastor? And, and we naturally, rightfully expect all that's involved with that shepherding role. But do you know what God's word here identifies that our expectation should be on our pastors when it comes to having a thriving church? That they would be equipping, equipping. And that that has a lot connected with it. There's a lot packed into that term. The term itself, equip, means to restore to a right condition or original condition so that whatever it is, can return to fulfilling its intended function. This word is used in Greek literature of resetting a broken bone, refitting a weathered ship, mending a torn fishing net. In the New Testament, it's used of the the disciples who were mending their nets. And the whole point of it is that that the person doing the equipping is working on the object and, and helping it to be restored to a right condition, not just so that it looks better, maybe in the case of a person, feels better, 
case of a broken arm, so it doesn't hurt anymore, isn't crooked, that's important. But why? So that it can be used again, right? And that's what pastors do. Now, how, what is their primary means of doing that? Yes, there's counseling. Yes, there are conversations. But ultimately, he, he, he identifies here the role of a pastor as a what? Pastors and teachers. And what do pastors teach? They teach the Word of God. And that is the primary role of the shepherd in equipping the church so the church will thrive, is to preach and to teach the Word of God. And again, there's a whole lot I could say about this, but I guess two, two questions. One is, what are your expectations of your pastor? And, and are they so numerous and broad and maybe even outside of a pastor's primary role, are you supportive of his role of being a minister of the Word and equipping you and equipping the church for growth through the ministry of the Word of God? If you text your pastor and you don't hear back right away, and maybe it's three hours, how do you feel? What are you thinking? Are you thinking, well, I guess I'm not important, or I guess he's too busy, or maybe he's out there visiting the greens, the golf course, right? Um, maybe he's studying for Sunday. Yes, yes, awesome. I'm so grateful. I'm going to pray for him right now. Is that, is that anywhere in your thinking? Could, could, it, could it be? Is there room for that? And, and of course, as pastors, we want to respond to urgent needs, and, and people are a priority, absolutely. But, but is our expectation, again, about me and what he's doing for me, or is it about his role in the life of the church and equipping us as believers? So, so the first question, what are your expectations? The, the second question, are you equipable? And again, I'm heart-to-heart -heart with church members here. Are you equipable? I had a separated AC joint from a bicycling accident. I had to have surgery and then about six weeks of therapy. And, and you know what I, I came to the conclusion after that is that pain really hurts. <laughs> it hurts. Anybody had shoulder surgery, okay, and therapy, right? And I had some scar tissue developing, and I had to sit in this chair where I, I strapped my arm in, and I had this little crank. It, it was like the rack, right, the medieval rack, and it just just stretch that, that scar tissue back that was part of my therapy. And that, that, was, that was awful. That was painful, right? Restoring a broken bone or an injured member sometimes can be painful, uncomfortable. As we're hearing from these messages, hey, we need people speaking into our lives, and sometimes they need to say to us, hey, uh, maybe that's not the right thing. You should, maybe you're not doing the right thing in that area of your life. Maybe you need to grow this area of your life. Maybe you're actually now indulging in something sinful. And from the pulpit, just listening with that desire, I want to be equipped. I want to become stronger. I want to be more useful. I want to grow personally so I can contribute to the life of the church. Are you open to your pastor's equipping role in your life? Now, I made a mistake on the handout on this one, so I'm going to ask you to correct it. I put on there having members. No, 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 no. <laughs> How about being members, right? We don't want to just have members who serve. So, so how, can we, how can our church thrive? By being members who serve, as he says in verse 12, equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Saints is every Christian. Sometimes as men, we're meeting somebody and, and uh, trying to make some conversation and say, so what do you do? So what do you do? 
It's a natural question, isn't it? What do you do? We're talking about what kind of work do you do? What's your occupation? And, and that's, what, that's what work is. It's what you do. And that's what this word work means here. It's your occupation, what you do. So, so here's a question for us related to the church. What do you do? What is your occupation? What is your role? What kind of work do you do in the church? So again, we're pushing this now back to church members and saying, all right, if pastors are here to equip us for the work of ministry, what is my work? I think we could probably all agree, especially from what we're hearing this weekend, that that definitely is disciple-making, disciple-making. That would be a large category for what we're doing. There are many roles, many occupations, many jobs, many tasks within the life of the church that all contribute to that, right? Some of them have names, teacher, deacon, um, ministry leader, you know, growth group leader, community group host. Uh, not all of them have titles. They're just work that needs to be done, praying, counseling, welcoming, caring for children, giving, comforting, vacuuming, coffee brewing, amen, preparing and delivering meals, giving somebody a ride, organizing, bookkeeping, maintaining facilities, operating technology, and on and on it goes, right? And, and you may be selected or elected to a position, and that's your role, or you may be asked to help, or you may volunteer, but the point is all of us have a way of serving and ministering in the church, and that's what contributes to the life and health of a church. So just some quick applications. First of all, recognize the privilege. Again, you have been graced. This is all part of God's grace in our lives. Christ uh, gave us grace. And it's a response to that grace that we now get involved in serving. It is a privilege. So recognize the privilege, accept the responsibility. Listen to what Paul said. In Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Listen to these words. I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Now, in the context of Romans 12, he's talking about relationships, but then he goes to responsibilities. And he says, not lagging in diligence in verse 11, Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Take those two ideas together. Don't think of yourself more highly than you should. Be diligent in serving the Lord. In other words, don't think you're above doing that task, accepting that job, fulfilling that role. None of us is above that. It is a privilege for us. So we need to accept the responsibility of serving. And then if you're already serving someplace, awesome. Praise God for the privilege, recommit to the responsibility, but if not, find a place. Talk to your pastor, talk to a leader in the ministry, and see where you can be involved, and your church can thrive. Number six, and this is a big one. This really is the heart and the core, I think, of this passage, and we'll just touch on it. So, so some of the questions, what is growth? What causes growth? Uh, what, what is the goal of growth? What are we growing toward is answered here. So our church can thrive when we are pursuing the correct model of growth. Just run your eyes uh, there over, and in fact, I'm going to start in verse 12. Start in verse 12. For the equipping of the saints, and I'm going to substitute a word here because this is what the language behind it indicates. Equipping of the saints 
unto the work of ministry, unto the edifying of the body of Christ, until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Those little words indicate direction, unto. So we're talking about growth. We're growing toward something. Then you see at the beginning of verse 13, the word until. That indicates time, right? Then you see in, uh, in verse 13, the word come. That means to arrive at a destination or to achieve a goal. That's growth. Moving in a direction over time toward a goal. So Paul, with these little terms, is reminding us the church should be moving in direction over time toward a goal. Your church should be moving in a direction over time toward a goal. Your church should be growing. But what is that goal? What are we growing toward? And this is where, again, Paul takes off into the stratosphere the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, a perfect man, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And let me just identify a few elements of this. This includes oneness. Sorry, I'm behind on my PowerPoint here. There we go. By pursuing the correct model of growth. And that includes oneness and fullness. So he says, till we all come to the, the oneness, the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So our faith in and our understanding of Jesus Christ and then to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And that fullness at least includes grace and truth. John said of Jesus um, that he came and he is full of grace and truth. So we know that much could be included in this fullness. Grace is God's favor. And this is where it starts to relate to your church. Um, has God shown you grace? Yes, he has. Your church represents Christ. In fact, he says back in, uh, in chapter 1, glance at it just for a second, verse 22, Ephesians 1, 22, he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So God's everywhere. Jesus Christ reaches every place and everyone in your community. But how does he do that? Through your church, through you. And you represent his fullness. So this fullness in chapter 4 is who Jesus is. So you as an individual member and your church represents Jesus Christ in your community and should be manifesting grace and truth. Did Jesus show grace to people when he was on this earth? We could, we could list the ways and the scenarios. Did Jesus speak truth to people while he's on this earth? I'll quickly say that I have two chapters in the book tracing through the Gospel of John instances where Jesus displayed grace and spoke truth. And those are models for us. And this is where evangelism comes in right here. So you as a church are displaying grace and speaking truth to the people in your community. How are you doing that? How well does your church do that? Can your church mature? Can your church grow? 
toward the fullness of Christ in that way? How can we show grace to the people around our church? How can we speak truth more effectively, clearly, strategically, with great care, as Jesus did to the people that our church touches? So that's where this goes into reaching out into the community. And that's just a quick glance at that very important element right there. Then a seventh way that uh, our church can thrive, your church can thrive, is by speaking truth in love. We see this in verse 15. If you've been around church much, you've heard this term. I'm going to give you three things I think this can include. One is preaching and teaching truth. So speaking truth in love definitely would include the preaching and teaching of the Word of God that is central, that is vital, that is foundational. But I think this can include more than that, because the word that's translated here, speaking the truth, is actually one word that could just be stated as truthing, truthing. So it includes speaking the truth, but I think it goes beyond that. I think it can include things like making choices by truth. So we, as a church, speak truth publicly through the preaching and teaching of the word, individually through conversations. We also are guided by truth. We are truthing together as a church. That's one of those words that where you take a noun and make it a verb. Two new verbs in the last few months. One is covidized. Is your, is your church COVIDized? Is your, where you work COVIDized? In other words, they've gone through all the protocols and sanitizing and all that. We've been COVIDized, right? Wearing masks. And the other one is 2020'd. <laughs> oh, it's a hurricane. We've been 2020'd. You know, oh, you know, it's a derecho. Oh, it's, you know, whatever. We've been 2020'd because what else can happen in 2020, right? Well, this is one of those words, truthing. Is your church truthed? Is truth predominant in the decisions that you make as a church? Is it theological fads, which Paul is warning us against here in this text, winds of doctrine? Is it celebrity uh, ministry leaders and their materials? Again, looking back on my ministry, there was a time when I thought, oh, wow, you know, this looks like it will work well. That church is doing it. Their parking lot is overflowing. Um, They're going to multiple services, and there's nothing wrong with those things, believe me. But there's a temptation sometimes to think, oh, what are they doing? How can we replicate that? Is it a fad? Is it what somebody else is doing? Is it what's popular? Is it what you're hearing on social media? Or is it truth? And sometimes it's fads, and sometimes it's tradition. Sometimes it's the other way. It's like, well, this is how we do it. This is what our church has always done, and this is how... We, we've been doing it for this many years, and there's just no good reason to change, right? And sometimes there's, there's those, those elements should be considered, but ultimately it has to be driven by truth. Our churches need to be shaped by truth. And so whether it's uh, setting up the budget or considering a new dimension to the church, a new way of connecting with people, hiring a pastoral team member, constructing a building— What is it driving those decisions? Is it people's preferences, people's expectations, uh, what's happening in the world around us, pragmatism, trends in contemporary Christianity, or is it truth? The life-giving, direction-setting, culture-shaping force in a thriving church is truth, and it also includes relationships built on truth. And this gets into the discipleship area as well. 
So speaking the truth in love doesn't just mean it comes from the pulpit or in the, the small group Bible studies. It means it's part of our, our, the flow of our conversation as believers. We are speaking into each other's lives. And this is where relationships have to go beyond being superficial into having significant impact where we're sharing truth with each other. This may be natural for you, may be happening in your church. It might be something new for you where you would say to somebody, hey, I'm trying to kind of get beyond the surface here in this church thing with with guys that I, I have conversations with. And this might seem a little personal, but would you mind sharing me with me how God's been working in your life, what God's been teaching you? That's a great conversation starter, right? It's simple. It shouldn't be threatening. In fact, we should be ready to answer that question ourselves, shouldn't we? And then everything we've been hearing about discipleship here in these main sessions fits right into that, flows right into that. So it includes speaking truth to each other, includes being honest with each other and not covering. But all of it is balanced by love, right? Truth balanced by love. Uh, I like to try to take care of my lawn and... and um, I don't mind a few weeds. Uh, there's a member of my household, very influential member, member of my household, um, who hates weeds and dandelions and likes to have that lush, green, weedless lawn. So I try to dwell according to knowledge the best I can. And, uh, and I have bees too, so, so dandelions are actually one of the first flowers that bees get you know, pollen and nectar from. So dandelions are vital, uh, but not in our yard. So, um, <laughs> but, but lawn treatment is expensive, right? So, so I've tried to do it myself. I get the bags of weed and feed, and I've got the spreader. And I don't know why, but for some reason, the numbers, the, the settings on the back of the weed and feed bag never quite correspond to the numbers that are on my spreader. So it's kind of guesswork. Well, this says, you know, four whatevers, and this has a, you know, two, four, six, eight, and okay, I think this is close. So dump it in, set it the way I think it should be, open it a little bit more, because it doesn't seem like much is coming out of there, and then, you know, run over the lawn back and forth. Well, one year in South Carolina, we had this big patch of weeds on our front lawn. We had Bermuda grass down there. Kind of looks like a golf course. And, and there's this big, ugly patch of weeds. So I went over the whole lawn, and I went back over that one again. And, you know, this philosophy I have of if a little bit will do a little good, I've learned it along the way. A lot will do a lot of good, right? So a couple more passes just to make sure, and, okay, that, that'll take care of those weeds, which it did. Uh, took care of those weeds, yeah. So there was a brown gash uh, in our front yard, where everybody passing by could see for literally about a year till the grass uh, grew, grew back in that patch. So, so, so sometimes the, the treatment needs to be moderated some, right? And that, that's what's involved with speaking the truth in love. So what we need to say, people may need to hear. It may be vital. It may be important. They may need to hear that truth. But it must be draped and couched and permeated with love, right? And here you see it again, love permeating the church. That is the atmosphere of these relationships. And so stop and think, all right, maybe what I'm saying needs to be heard. Is this the right time? Do I have the right tone? Should I wait a little bit? Can I, can I word this in a way that is gracious? My wife is so good at that. She'll say something to somebody and I'll say, how? did you think to say it in such a sweet and gracious way? You just basically told them that they're wrong. 
And they're, and they're like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, you know. And she just has this way of, of wording something that's it's not, it's not confrontational. It's not threatening. And I wish I had that gift. But sometimes it's just a matter of stepping back and saying, okay, how can I word this? How can I say this in a way that will be received in the best way possible? And that is speaking the truth in love. Lots we could say about that. Let's go to number eight, which is how can we thrive as a church by staying closely connected to Christ and to one another. And that is what's in verse 16. In my study of this, my understanding of what he's talking about here is that when he talks about the joints between the members, he's talking about our connectivity. And again, uh, John emphasized this, being connected to Christ. And you'll notice at the beginning of verse 16, from whom? So the body is connected to Christ and joined and knit together. So so we are connected to each other. And that strong connectivity with each other through the relationships in the church provides the opportunity for that truth to flow, for that work to happen, for unity to be in place. And so is there anything that is distancing you from Christ? Is there anything distancing you from other members of the church? And really this is talking about the church as a whole. As a whole, our church should be consciously connected to Christ through our worship. Are the songs about me liking it, it being my preference, it being my favorite? Or is there truth in those songs that exalts Christ and and acknowledges who he is and what he has done? So worship and prayer, dependence on Christ, corporate prayer as a church receiving that strength from him and then connected to each other so that truth can flow, we can function together, and we stay in unity. I've given you some thoughts there to help you pray and think through these, and I hope you will do that. I hope you'll go away and and do that. Uh, I'm not very good at promoting books. I'm really not. Kind of my first time at this, so um, we made it as hard as possible because your opportunity to buy it was last hour. So, um, But I believe they're making it available in the, in the office for the rest of the day. So if you want it, you can go there. It's on Amazon. If you have Amazon Prime, I think it'll be there Monday. Um, you can do it that way or Kindle. And uh, it may be available through Logos as well. If you use Logos software, I think it may be on there. So glad to talk with you more. Thank you, gentlemen, for your time. Appreciate you. May God bless our churches, and may they thrive for the glory of Christ. Thank you.